It's good to see you all here today. We are in, uh, going to be in Genesis chapter 2. So if you go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, I'll be reading from there. We have been going through Romans, of course, and last week we touched upon some aspects of human sexuality and man being made in the image of God. And we talked about in Genesis, uh, in uh, Romans chapter 1, we talked about some pretty difficult topics. And so uh, this week we want to pause in our journey through Romans. We want to address really what the Bible teaches on the topic of marriage. And there's a lot that the Bible teaches on that topic. And uh, to that end, you should have in your bulletin an, uh, an outline or, well, you have an outline that you can also write on, but you have a uh, paper that uh, should be two-sided and it says, uh, what is marriage or what is biblical marriage and what the Bible says about marriage. And so I intended to bring that up here so I could show it to you, but you all know what it is. That I won't be preaching from that, but uh, that's for your uh, own edification so that you can uh, kind of see what our church teaches on the topic of marriage. The elders spent uh, some number of months studying the topic of marriage from the Bible for the purpose of putting together uh, that document that explains what Parkside teaches about marriage. And so we wanted that to be in your hands. And then today is going to be an explanation of it. I won't be preaching from that as my text or anything like that, but uh, we're going to be talking about the topic of marriage, what the Bible teaches on it. And so to that end, if you're uh, in your Bible there, in Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to read for us from verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground... The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in worship. We acknowledge before you and before one another and to ourselves that you alone are God. You have made us, you have fashioned us, we exist for your purpose. You are over all. You are almighty, all-knowing, and you are good. And so we pause to worship you this morning. We have worshipped you in song and in giving and in fellowship and uh, 
And we worship you now in prayer also and in the study of your word. We give you glory. You are worth our time. You are worth our lives. You are worthy of all of our praise. We praise you that you have given us your word that speaks truth to us. We praise you that you have given us your son who lived a life of obedience that we should have and have not and died in our place the death that we should have. And we rejoice in this time of year, we get to celebrate not only the crucifixion, we do celebrate that, we rejoice in the forgiveness that we have there, but we celebrate also the resurrection of Christ. And so we praise you for this resurrection season. We praise you for the fact that you raised Jesus from the dead. You declared thereby that, that uh, you uh, accepted his offering, that in fact the words that he spoke of himself were true and we can believe what he says and he really is uh, raised from the dead and death no longer has mastery or control or dominion over him but instead he is seated at your right hand he is God over all and so we rejoice that we get to worship a risen savior and we do so this morning and even as we come to this topic of marriage in our culture it's a, a topic that is maligned misunderstood Certainly not valued, broadly speaking, in our culture. But, Father, we want to hear from you what you say about it. And so we ask that you would bless our time, that you would speak to us even here on this topic. Encourage us, instruct us, guide us, speak to us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was 18, I graduated from high school and... I received a gift of a TV with a VCR in the bottom. Remember what a VCR is? Some of you don't. <laughs> so I had a TV with a VCR in the bottom. It was one unit, and I thought that was the greatest thing. And, and uh, so I uh, watched it till it died. And I don't know how much later it was, but uh, it had died. And I thought, well, I'm a smart guy. I mean, I'm a high school graduate, after all. I can figure this thing out. So I took off the case and I pulled it all apart and I thought, wow, there are a lot of gizmos in there. And, uh, and I pulled it apart and of course I never, you know, get right back to finishing the project that I first start. So I, I saw what it looked like and I was thinking, I'll just remember what it looks like. And then I pull it all apart and it's spread everywhere in my bedroom and then weeks pass and then months pass and then I try and put it back together. Uh, so that's funny that it, you know, it, it worked when I pulled it apart, at least to some degree and, and when my putting it back together, I didn't achieve the same result. And part of it was because I'd forgotten what it looked like. And part of it was because I needed to know what it looked like in very fine detail, right? And I had never taken notice of that at all. And then what I had taken notice of, I had forgotten anyway. Well, I, that's a little bit of what we're doing today. Last week, we talked about some perversions of marriage and human sexuality and of God's, uh, some perversions of God's design for, uh, for marriage and for male and female and us being created in God's image. And, and so we wanted to take this opportunity to, um, after, after that discussion of the thing being torn apart, we want now to take a look at what it's supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function, biblically speaking. 
And so we're just going to take uh, this morning and go through that document that you have in your hand, which is a tour through the Bible, really, about what it says about marriage. We want to see what God has to say about that. We want to see what it's supposed to look like and how it is uh, supposed to function. Last week, we noticed in Paul's argument from Romans chapter 1 that he really went back to the Genesis account, the creation account, to understand what the roles of husband and wife were supposed to be, or rather what marriage was supposed to be, male and female, and what that means. And so um, we wanted to come back and look at this and tour this passage. We're going to address the one we looked at last week uh, briefly, which is uh, from Genesis chapter 1, and then we're going to look at Genesis 2, and later on we're also going to look at Ephesians 5. And of course, there are other passages in the Bible that talk about marriage, but uh, we wanted to give this overview. So let's get to it. First of all, you can see that uh, marriage there, point number one, is rooted in creation. And this is what we referred to last week in chapter 1. So if you'll turn left in your Bible, just one page probably. Genesis 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see, first of all, that man was created with a purpose. Talking about marriage, we go back to the creation account. We see that there is purpose behind God's creation. We were created in His image, which means something about who we are, and it means something about the role that we play. We talked last week about the image being a vice regent or a kind of a, a king beneath the, the great king who would, was to administer this territory, and our territory is the earth. And so man has been given the responsibility as the image bearer of God to rule over, to exercise God's dominion over the earth as his representatives. And so the blessing... And the command that he gave was the means by which we were to fulfill those responsibilities. So you saw in chapter 1, he created him in God's image, male and female. And then immediately he gives him this blessing and God blessed them, period, verse 28. And then it continues in verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, etc., etc. And so he's, he's giving them uh, in their created state a role and an identity And the identity is as his image. And the role is to bear his image to the world. And he's given them also, in this tight little passage here, also the means by which they can accomplish that purpose. Because remember, he gave the command to two people. Two people. And they were to rule over all the birds, all the fish, all the creeping things, over the the entire earth. And there were two of them. And so he... He gave them the means by which they were to do that, namely that they were to multiply, they were to be fruitful and multiply and and fill the earth and thus subdue it and thus rule over it. And so he gave them the means to accomplish the purpose for which he created them. And so 
We turn to Genesis chapter 2 and we see that it's no good for man to be alone. Adam is no good alone. And uh, many wives could maybe think that about their husbands as well. He's no good alone, but with me. <laughs> so, no good alone. Look at chapter 2 and verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Right? So it's an observation by God of this state that man is in. Genesis 2, by the way, just to reflect on this for a moment, Genesis 2 is a retelling of the creation narrative with a particular focus. So Genesis 1 has its layout of day 1, day 2, and all these things created and, and those things, and it ends in the beginning of chapter 2 with the, the, the Sabbath rest of God. And then chapter 2, it turns and it focuses now on that those same events, but focusing upon man and man's relationship to the rest of creation and relationship to one another. And so we have here uh, this statement about God that God is making about the man. Here the man is alone after his initial creation. He's by himself. And remember, he's supposed to go and be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but he's alone. I think normally when we think about this passage, we think in terms of the psychology of someone being alone. And the loneliness is not good. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think that's true. Loneliness is, is a, a, it can be a, a very powerful element in a person's life. It's not good for a person to be lonely in that sense, to be on their own. But that's not what he's talking about. This is in the context of the command and the means by which he's given that command. Man, as created in the image of God, is supposed to rule over creation. Well, how can Adam do that by himself? He can't. He can only be at one place, one time. He can't fulfill that command. And so, in that sense, it's not good that he be alone. And so, he needs a suitable helper. And so, we continue on. Verse 20 of Genesis chapter 2, the man gave names to all the livestock, right? Because God had made all the animals and, and the flying things and the fish and the crawl. He had, he had made these other living creatures. And so in order maybe to demonstrate to Adam that there is a distinction between Adam as the man and these kind of creatures, he parades all of the creatures before him. And the man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. So he, he named each one. He identified this is what they're like. Those are the two that go together. And he, he began to piece together what this looks like. But for the man, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. After having observed all the creatures, named them all. Who knows how long that took. But he gave names to all of them. And Adam... Adam saw, he became aware, there's not one like me. I'm alone. I can't even accomplish the purpose for which God made me. Since I am alone, and in that sense, it was not good for him to be alone. So this isn't a good situation. So we continue reading in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
So after having identified there is not one like the man, and Adam now understands there is not one like me to be my mate, to be my helper, God makes one. Causes a deep sleep to fall upon him, takes a a rib, fashions the rib from his side into woman. And when that woman is presented to him, what does Adam realize? He says, now I've found my helper. I found the one that's like me. This at last, finally, after naming all of those animals, after seeing all of those two by two parade by him or whatever, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So he had a mate that was fitted for him. Just like the rest of the creatures have mates that are fitted for them. So now he has the helper with which he can uh, spread God's image around the world. He can carry out that command that he had been given. He can receive that blessing that he had been given. He can multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and thus have dominion over all of the earth on God's behalf as his image. And a key aspect of their relationship is the one flesh union. We continue reading about the priority of their relationship. Look in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want to observe about the priority of this new relationship. Previously, before the marriage had happened, of course, this isn't talking about Adam and Eve. They didn't have parents for which they could leave, from which they could leave and all of that. But generally speaking, every other marriage after this, that's been the case. The primary relationship for a child is mom and dad. Earthly speaking, humanly speaking, that's the primary relationship. And that's, that has the, the priority. That being right with mom and dad is important. And obedience to parents is an important thing. That's, we grow up under that kind of context. But when marriage happens, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. So what had been the primary relationship, he leaves that and he goes and he joins to another and that becomes the primary relationship. The two shall become one flesh. He shall cleave to his wife, hold fast to his wife. And so There's a transition in the priority in that relationship. And so when we think about marriage, that's something that we need to understand about the priority of marriage. It's a, it's a challenge that people go through and I went through it. I'm sure everyone else who's married to one degree or another has gone through it. When you first get married, understanding what now is your relationship with your parents. You still love them. You still trust them, but you have a new one that you have a greater commitment to your spouse. And sometimes that can cause difficulty. But there is a priority placed upon that new relationship. And the two, secondly, are to join into a one flesh union. This is interesting. If you look at verse 21, it's more than interesting. It's important. Right at the end, uh, the Lord takes out a rib. He closed up its place with flesh. Right? He takes from the man's flesh... And look down at verse 23. What does the man observe about the woman? She is flesh of my flesh. And then what's to happen in verse 24 when they're joined in marriage? They become one flesh again. So you have a, there's a great degree of intimacy that's talked about here. The one flesh union is, uh, is talking primarily about the, the physical sexual union of husband and wife. It goes far beyond that. 
There's much more involved in that when we talk about a spiritual joining and a, a psychological joining and the comfort and all the things that are involved in that joining together. But it is not less than that union. It's pictured by them coming back together. So you have this image of, of Adam with one flesh and then some flesh was taken from him, formed into someone who was like him. And so Adam would say, that's flesh of my flesh. And then when they get married, they are to rejoin into one flesh again. So you have this reunion coming together again of this one flesh union. And that one flesh union is going to be considered, as we continue on through the Bible, it's going to be considered the sign of the covenant. That one flesh union is the sign of this marriage covenant. You can see that again and again in uh, the New Testament. When uh, New Testament writers or Jesus are talking about marriage and thinking about what marriage is like and drawing conclusions about, therefore, how we understand marriage, they go back to this one flesh union. The two have become one flesh. For example, Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 19, which is also uh, Mark chapter 10, he was asked a question about divorce. Tough question. And so how is Jesus going to answer that question? It goes back to our passage. And he says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus in his understanding, expressing his understanding of marriage and divorce is talking about this one flesh union. And so we see it's the sign of the covenant. It's a reminder, this joining together in a one flesh union, it's a reminder of the binding covenant relationship that a husband and a wife have together for their whole lives, which as a side note, begs the question, what is a covenant? Well, generally speaking, briefly, a covenant is a formal agreement with stipulations. It's a solemn agreement with consequences if it's broken. Right? So you can see how uh, probably a, a very visible, one of the more visible representations of a covenant that we have is actually a marriage ceremony, a wedding ceremony, where you have witnesses who are watching this thing happen and, and, and signing the documentation. You have, you have someone who's doing the officiating. You have promises made till death do us part and all of that. This is a picture of a covenant. It's a joining of two groups together, two people together into this one person. And you'll notice that uh, the word covenant is not used in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. But it's used elsewhere in the Bible of this relationship of marriage. For example... Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14 says this, But you say, Why does he not accept our offerings? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So here you have the Lord speaking to the people during the time of Malachi, and he's He's uh, railing against them for their, their unfaithfulness to their wives and, and the things that were going on there. And he says to them, you are unfaithful to your wife, who is your wife by covenant. And by the way, I was the witness, says the Lord. So 
It's a solemn agreement. It's ratified. This marriage is ratified by the sign of sexual union. And it has consequences if it is broken. And the Lord himself is the witness. And in your marriage too, the Lord was the witness of your covenant taking. And the marriage is a lifelong covenant. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19. When reflecting and answering this question about divorce and remarriage and those things, he, he refers to the one flesh union and then he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The covenant is made as long as you both shall live. You remember saying those things. You remember having those things said to you. Well, in our culture, you can see I've already painted a very different picture, and we're not done, than what the culture teaches about marriage about what marriage is. If it's valued at all, and I read statistics and see headlines about fewer and fewer young people getting married and and things like that, because who needs it? If you can can have uh, the benefits, uh, humanly speaking, sexually speaking, of the marriage without getting married, uh, more and more are saying, why then get married? Why even bother? Our culture is trying to redefine it. We talked last week about about uh, homosexuality and, and those sorts of things from Romans chapter 1. And one of the things we learn in this passage is about why marriage is defined biblically the way it is. There are some consequences for understanding these biblical passages that will help us when we think about what is and is not marriage. It has been defined from this passage as that one flesh union between the male and the female for the purpose of bearing more and more images of God, which cannot be done in homosexual unions, cannot be done in those kind of contexts. And therefore, biblically speaking, those aren't considered marriages. This is what is considered marriage. And so we draw these conclusions just based upon what we see here in Scripture. And the reason you have that document in front of you there is because we as a church need to recapture a definition, a biblical definition of what is marriage. When we do so, we will be be able to identify that which is an unbiblical definition of marriage that would be foisted on us by culture, that would even be foisted on us by by elements within the broader uh, Christian community in the United States and elsewhere. We need to have a biblical definition on this topic. Marriage is losing its significance today, and sometimes that's true even in the church But from the beginning, God had a particular design and purpose for marriage, and it was to be the means by which the very first commandment in Scripture was to be carried out as God's image spread around the world, spreading God's dominion throughout the earth by means of multiplication. And so we see at the very essence some true things, some important things, some countercultural things about what marriage is. And so let's look briefly at some consequences and some implications Beyond what I've already said. Well, first of all, male and female, husband and wife, are of equal value, but they have varied roles. Of equal value, but have varied roles. They were both created in the image of God, and thus they have an equal intrinsic worth before God. Period. There's no question of of, uh, value, of differing value between the two. They're equal in value. However, he created them in a certain order, 
which later on in the New Testament, Paul will make an argument based upon the order in which God created man and woman. And so the order is important. And that order of creation results in certain different roles. And the instructions here result in certain different roles. Though they don't change the ultimate value, the intrinsic worth of the male or the female. Yet they play different roles. They merely function differently according to the design and purpose for which he made them in the first place. God has spelled out for us what that design, what that purpose is. And so the husband has no right to feel or to act superior because of his God-ordained role in the marriage. Nor, nor does the wife have any reason to feel inferior or fight for superiority because of her God-ordained role in the marriage. God has established these things in creation from the very beginning. And so there are there is equal value, but there are varied roles. We see secondly, a second consequence and implication of what we looked at is procreation and marriage. Another observation from our brief time through here is that God's plan and purpose for marriage is bound up with, with procreation. It's, it's at the heart of the design. It's at the heart of the reason he made woman in the first place. It's not the only reason, of course. But it's close to the heart of that. From the very beginning, this is about children. This is about couples having babies. And of course, in our day, we live in a culture of death. I was born the year Roe v. Wade came out, 45 years ago, 46 years ago now. And in that time, 60 million of my peers and younger have died in the womb, in this country alone. And we're not the worst offender. But that is horrific. What a culture of death. What a culture of death. It's an unspeakable evil, and it's happening on our watch during our time. God's design for marriage at its basic element has to do with, includes having babies. Now, I'm aware that there are couples who cannot, who would love to have children and are unable to. I, I understand that. And we read in the Bible about couples like Abram and Sarai, about Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were barren, were unable to have children. And so we pray for those people. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, to continue to trust the Lord. And this does not mean that you are cursed. This does not mean that your marriage is any less significant or uh, anything like that. Because if we say that about you, we need to say that about Abraham and Sarah. And of course, they were key, central in God's entire plan. And so we pray for you. But the very fact that Abraham and Sarah stand out so much, the very fact that Elizabeth and Zechariah stand out so much uh, to us from Scripture points to the fact that the norm is people get married and then they have babies. That's the norm. Procreation and marriage go together. And marriage is for life. It's for life. It's a lifelong covenant. It's a commitment uh, to which God was the witness at that covenant sealing moment or that uh, covenant promising moment. Promises have been made to one another. Stipulations are made if you break the covenant. It has legal consequences. It has consequences for your life. 
The biblical message is that marriage is for life, and that message is portrayed for us, by the way, in the Lord's Supper that we celebrate today. Which brings us to our fourth point, communion, Christ, and the church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would, please. Ephesians chapter 5 is a powerful passage. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to read it in just a moment, tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And the roles we have within our marriage relationship are pictured, or are rather a picture of, the relationship between Christ and His church. And so when we think about marriage in that light, when you think about the fact that we are playing roles, we are putting on display for people to see truths about Jesus and his church, and you play a role, you're wearing a a costume, you're carrying a sign that says who you are, displaying before the world about your role in that relationship adds a little sobriety to marriage. It means uh, it makes being a wife much more significant. It, It adds a new level of weight to what it means to be a husband. Now, I'm going to read our passage. I'm going to read it straight through, starting from we're in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. I'm going to read right through the end of the chapter, and you can see how this develops. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We see the first element there is that the wife is the church. Right off the bat, the wife is the church. In this marriage relationship that is a picturing forth, a shining forth of the relationship between Christ and His church, the role that the wife plays is the church. And so, thus, the wife submits to her husband as, Christ, as, uh, as Christ's body, the church, submits to Christ. And so that's the reason for the submission, because it's a picture, it's a, to put on display. And, of course, does the church submit to Christ? Yes. And joyfully, because we know what has been done for us. We know the price that was paid for us. When we think about our own redemption, it's very personal. That when Jesus was hanging on that cross, He had your name in His mind. He was paying the penalty for your sins. And so, church, it's a very personal thing when we think about this redemption. And so, 
Can we trust this Jesus? Can we trust him to submit to him? Oh, yeah. He's already proven it. He's already proven it by redeeming us at, at every personal expense. And so we trust him and we submit to him. Now, wives are thinking, well, Jesus is trustworthy and he is. My husband is less so. And he is. <laughs> I'm one of those who is less so. <laughs> and so there's a, I would say, a, a, an element of faith. But there's a giant element of faith. But that's the role you're playing. In submitting to your husband, you are demonstrating, you are putting on display by faith the very submission of the church to Christ. And that's the reason for it. It's not because he's smarter than you. He's not. It's not because he's better at stuff. He's probably not. It's not because he's superior in any way. That is not the point. He's not. It's because that is how we've been created. That's the picture we're putting forth. And remember, we are His image. Part of bearing His image is the way we image forth, the way we shine forth this relationship. Secondly, the husband is Christ. The husband as Christ. I always enjoy this because if you will look in your, in your Bibles there, you'll see the the, the part for the wife is a couple of verses. It's three verses altogether. It's not much, right? And a, a preacher shakes in his boots a little bit when he stands up to preach this one. Wives, submit to your husbands, right? And the husbands are there, you know, like maybe nudging their wives or I don't know. Look at the next section for the husbands. It's not three verses. It's the rest of the chapter. And if, if we thought submitting was hard, and it is, What's the role the man plays? What's the husband supposed to do? Remember, he's, he's playing the role. He's imaging forth, shining forth, showing forth, playing the part of Christ in this relationship. And what does Christ do? He dies for her. He lays down his life for her. So husbands, go ahead and yuck it up when I'm in the section about the wives submitting to husbands. And we look to the section to to you and me, husbands. And it's powerful. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That just changes the tone. And so I I get a kick out of that when I'm studying through this with someone. Right? And uh, maybe, you know, if it's a new believer or uh, typically, you know, a, a younger man or, or someone, they kind of, yeah, you know, wives submit to husbands and boy, it's good to be the man. And, and they kind of enjoy that part, right? And then you, you get to the next section and you point out to them the size of it and the direction of it, what it says about our roles and the eyes get big and suddenly it gets a little quiet. Die, husbands. Lay down your life for your bride. That's a different picture. That's, that's a very different picture than, than uh, the swagger, perhaps, of, uh, of the man who thinks that, uh, yeah, my wife should submit to me, and so I get to do what I want. She does what I says or what I say, and it's, it's good to be the king. And it's, the truth is so far from that. that there's a, the woman sub, submits, and it is by faith, husbands. I, I see you. I know you. I know me. And it is by faith that your wife submits to you, trusting the Lord and asking Him for strength. And He gives her strength and grace as she does that. 
And your responsibility is to lay down your wife, your life for your wife. It continues to sanctify her. That he might sanctify her. Make her holy. Of course, you can't make your wife holy, but as we continue on, how does, how does Jesus do that and what is our role in that? That he might sanctify her, verse 26, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives, wives as their own bodies. Husband, you have a responsibility, spiritually speaking, for your wife. You have a responsibility to minister to her, to minister the word to her, encourage her in Christ, lead her to Christ, pray for her, pray with her, This is something, husbands, that we need to remember and we need to, many of us, most of us, and perhaps all of us need to improve in. The husband is as Christ. And we come finally to the mystery celebrated. Because Paul says, this mystery is profound, verse 32, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's talking about the one flesh union. He just quoted that. He's talking about the marriage relationship. That mystery, that mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what this means is that in in Paul's thinking here, God is not using the example of your marriage using the truth of your marriage as an illustration of kind of what it's like for God and his relationship with the church. It's the other way around. He's using the truth of his relationship, of Christ's relationship with the church, and he's illustrating it in your marriage. He's putting it on display in your marriage. And so it's a mystery. But it's about Christ and the church being unified, being made one together, and there's a lot of theology in there. But where we want to go today is to the Lord's Supper. We come to the Lord's Supper and and we celebrate Jesus' death for us on the cross. We, We celebrate, we call to mind the fact that He, in His own body, was tortured, was hung up there for our sins. And believer, He had your name in mind when He was hanging there, paying the penalty for you specifically. paid that penalty in his body in the shedding of his blood so that he could make you his own so that he could take you as his bride so that all of the redeemed would be the bride of Christ and that's what we picture when we when we come to the Lord's Supper we think of what he has done for us to make us his own to make us his own bride and this is why I said earlier about the lifelong nature of the marriage covenant. There are, think about if Jesus changed his mind. Think about if he were to say, yeah, I took her as my bride. I don't want her anymore. She's too disobedient. We would have no comfort. We would have no security. We would have no freedom. We would have no joy. There would be no Christian life if Jesus were like that. When he made that 
covenant commitment to us as his bride. It was forever. And aren't you glad? Because you know in your own heart, I know in my own heart, I am that disobedient bride. That he, he should set aside. He should cast away in favor of another. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And our marriage is to shine forth that same commitment as a picture of Christ's relationship in the church. And so we come to the Lord's table even today. And so the men who are serving, if they would come forward. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of those facts, a celebration of what has been done when we have been purchased with a price. We have been made His very own at the expense of His own life. And so, Christians, we celebrate this. This is a Christian celebration for those who are in Christ to celebrate. If, uh, if you don't know Christ, if some of this just really doesn't make sense to you and you have questions, you never heard this before, or you've never trusted Christ, come talk to me or come talk to us afterwards. And we want to we wanna talk to you about this gospel. But this celebration that we do now doesn't place us into Christ, doesn't make us Christians. This is a celebration Christians enter into to rejoice, to celebrate what has been done for us by Jesus himself. And as we do this, we recall, Christian, that we are a disobedient bride. And he is a forgiving husband. And so take this opportunity as the elements are being passed around, as we're praying. Confess your own sin. There is sin there. Confess it, and he forgives it. Give that to him and, and, and repent of that thing and rejoice in the forgiveness and the life that we have in Christ, knowing that we are secure in him and he will never cast us aside. We are secure in Christ.